0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Third Deck Lounge podcast. Tonight, I'm talking with uh, Lieutenant Jackson Smith of India Company 36. He was in from 2009 to 2012. Uh, He was the third platoon uh, commander for the 2010 deployment to Marja and was the XO for the 2011 deployment back to Marja. Uh, Now, he lives in uh, New Orleans uh, working as a director for an organization called bastion that's a tbi treatment facility that also runs a uh residential community for uh treatment for vets and uh their families so and uh w- welcome to the show man
1: hey man thanks a lot i really appreciate you having me and and for that intro
0: yeah yeah it's uh it's really cool I, i've got so many uh so many things i want to talk to you we, we've actually been talking for like half an hour before we even started recording just talking about the stuff we wanted to talk about on the show this is gonna be uh it's gonna be pretty sweet um so where are you uh from originally and then uh why did you end up going into the marine corps
1: um so i grew up in the dc area um my whole life until uh i turned 18 and came down to new orleans to go to college but um and my dad had been a Marine, was a Vietnam vet, and, you know, so that was pretty well set in my mind that that's what I was going to do for most of my life. I went to kind of like a shithead teenager phase for a while where, like, I didn't really have any ambition. I just wanted to be a shithead, and um, then nine eleven happened right at the start of my junior year, and, uh, you know, it was pretty much a done deal for me at that point in terms of what I was going to do. Um, so... Was going to enlist, had the recruiter on his way to my house to sign me up to miss my high school graduation um, to go to boot camp in the summer of 03. And uh, my dad pulled me aside and he was like, Hey, look, I get it. I totally get what you're thinking right now that like your war is starting and you got to go and you don't want to miss it. And that's what I did. I dropped out of college to go join the Marine Corps and volunteered to go to Vietnam. Uh, but then I got there and me and everybody else had to take orders from some guys who didn't give a shit about us and didn't know what they were doing and they got, you know, guys killed or hurt, including me and there wasn't shit that I could do about it because I was Lance Corporal Smith and they were Lieutenant Dickhead and so if, you know, you, you know, think you might have the ability to, you know, serve guys better than we got served, then you kind of owe it to those guys to exercise some patience here and go, you know, uh, go to school and get your commission. So, you know, that's at least one spot that's not being filled by a dickhead. So yeah. I took his advice and, uh, and went to school and, you know, watched Iraq happen, watched Fallujah happen, watched Ramadi happen, and thought, like, yeah, I'm fucking missing it. Awesome. Great. And, uh, really got all the way to IOC, kind of thinking like, fuck, man, did we, like, miss the whole thing? Like, guys are still going to Iraq, but, you know, this was 08. Like, the fighting had kind of stopped. Um, So we thought, like, we'd miss the whole show. And it wasn't until we got to IOC, uh, and this is, like, late 08, early 09. So, like, the 2-4-MU had gone into Helmand. They were the first ones in. And it had been apparently, like, just a fucking Wild West shit show. Um, and then 2-7 and 3-8 went and had these insane deployments of, like, one battalion being stretched across, like, half of Helmand and, and into Farah. And, you know, again, getting into fights with, like, 100, 200 Taliban at a time with technicals and shit. So now all of a sudden we're like, oh, fuck. Like, there, there's, like, a whole new fight and we're going to be right in it. Um, but I got to 3-6. I was the last lieutenant to check into 3-6 and we had we expected that we were going to be the last victory unit in iraq um, oh, shit. And that we were going to basically going to be like sweeping out connex boxes and handing shit over to iraqis so like morale was not good um and before the call you know you were you were uh you know we were talking about like kind of getting into how things were back then and like how what what the atmosphere was in the company and and among the squads and i said like yeah we can get into it because like there's a lot there um and i'm i'm happy to talk about it you know as as frankly as i can but um yeah morale was like bad you know guys were fucking in a shitty mood um the last deployment seemed like it had been they'd been in fallujah but again that was 07 um or 08 and, you know, things were pretty quiet by then. Um, there was, like, an, one IED went off, and I think a couple guys got hurt. Um, and then there was actually an India Company guy who got killed. So, uh, an Iraqi, like, infiltrated their patrol base and crept up on post and uh, shot a guy in the back of the head. So, like, morale was not great, you know? Um And then really the last minute we found out we were not only going to Afghanistan, but that we were going to be, uh, you know, one of two battalions doing this crazy Marja thing, which we had never fucking heard of Marsha until they told us, Hey, you're doing this crazy Marja thing. Um, so then it was fucking on, but that was like Thanksgiving. And we deployed basically on New Year's.
0: Oh shit. Okay. And then how much, um, what, what all training wise was leading up to, uh, to that deployment?
1: So, I mean, you know, we trained a, a good amount. Um, I remember, so again, I was the last guy to get there. Um, we had done this like three week field op on Lejeune, I think like the month before I got there that sounded like it had kind of been a shit show. Um, like, the feeling of, like, competence and, like, especially, like, confidence up the chain of command at, at a lot of levels, um, particularly up at the battalion level, was bad. Um, and, like, kind of openly bad. Oh, and really? uh, Yeah. So, I got there. I literally checked in on, like, a, that fr- on a Friday. And on Monday we left for uh, Camp Dawson, West Virginia, which I don't know if if you've ever been up there. It's like way up no. in the mountains. It was basically a week of like sh- shitty weather, mountain shit. Um, oh, gotcha. But at that point, I was shadowing the guy who I was replacing, so like I really, I literally had nothing to do the entire week except follow this fucking dickhead around um who i didn't realize it at the time but was basically getting like soft fired he was being moved from the platoon to weapons platoon i think with the thought that like well you know weapons platoon commander is not really a platoon commander um which is you know a shitty way of doing business but i think that was the thinking so i just had to follow this fucking moron around and um you know the cool thing was down at the squad level, guys were good, you know, and, and hard and wanted to train and would train and would suffer. But um, there seemed to be a pretty bad vibe in terms of confidence and leadership in a lot of places.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's all pretty. That's, that's really, that's interesting to, to think about all that
1: um you were asking about uh training so like, we had done that big lejeune training op uh like the month prior i don't know what we did earlier than that um we did camp dawson and then we did uh a bunch more like little things around lejeune you know like patrolling ops for four days um and then we went to ap hill and then I think we went to Twenty Nine Palms. Well, we went to Twenty Nine Palms in like the dead heat of summer, and somehow we're there for like six weeks. Um, it was awful. Twenty Nine Palms was where we really like bottomed out. Um, like the 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 rumor going around, certainly like at the squad level, and I never like got this corroborated or denied. Was that we had like functionally failed um you know the the evaluation of mojave viper um it, it that was really when we kind of tipped into like shit show mode where it was there was there was almost a vibe of like what the fuck is going on oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but again you know like the squads were fucking good like the point when i knew like my platoon was was really good and that like i did not need to worry about like competence you know certainly competent below my level was uh on 410 and going on palms uh, which i assume now is still kind of like the certifying exercise for the platoon huh so That's when with, like, machine gun hill. oh sorry what was that yeah, like every fucking range at going on palms has machine gun hill but Anyway, when we went through Mojave Viper, as it was called then, 410 or 410 Alpha was the, like, this is kind of your unofficial, like, final exam as a platoon. Because Range 400 is the company, you know, and all mm-hmm. the bigger level shit they do than that is, like, company or battalion level. 410 is, like, the platoon show. And when we did it lot, when we did the live evaluated day run, one of the coyotes killed me and uh as soon as i hit the ground i look over to my platoon sergeant and he's already on the radio and the succession of command is already happening and like boom 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 just like everything happened like the the attack did not slow down for a fucking second um and i was just like oh it's beautiful like that's it it's perfect um But then, at at levels especially higher than the company, the the vibe was, what the fuck is going on? This is a shit show.
0: Huh.
1: I mean, when you describe it like that,
0: it sounds like nothing's changed, because everybody's always sitting here wondering, what the fuck's going on? (laughs) That's
1: a great point, man. Like, we were talking before you started recording about, you know, how things were in the barracks, and I was like, it was fucking crazy. But I expected still crazy now you know i think there are certain things about the infantry that are kind of uh eternal you know yeah like the odds that you're gonna have some level of your chain of command you know platoon company or battalion that's kind of fucked up are not bad certainly um so and and i think bad experiences tend to be a lot more formative than good ones you know
0: yeah, definitely, probably I mean, I, I, take I, more away I had from the it.
1: Advantage. I had the advantage of some really bad experiences in that respect, and some really good ones in immediate proximity. Like the the company commander that I was XO under on my second deployment was the best officer I ever served with, um, maybe the best leader. Period. Like I never saw the guy make a mistake ever, and I and I kind of started looking. You know, and it got to the point where I was like, "This is weird." He was just like. The, like, uh, ultimate example of, like, decency and competence. I mean, the guy was fucking brilliant. He'd been in my IOC instructor. So, like, the guy knew infantry tactics inside and out, and he was just, like, a good dude. He was always going to do the right thing. Um, so I don't know which one of those two, like, made a bigger impression on me, but I do find myself telling stories about the bad ones more. For what
0: that yeah, no, that definitely, that makes sense. That, that's really cool though. Being able to have, uh, just solid people around you.
1: Um, yeah. And I mean like that is it, it took me two seconds get upon getting the third platoon to realize like, Oh, these guys are fucking solid. Um, they've been working around this, um, you know, real problem, uh, At the officer level for a while but they've learned how to do it really well and they're still really fucking good and that is almost more impressive to me than if everybody in the platoon had been good right so i mean that's pretty lucky and i also got along really well with my platoon sergeant from day one which is also like insanely lucky if those two personalities just don't jive well which is totally a matter of chance like it just fucking sucks Sucks for everyone.
0: Yeah. Plus, like, you. How long was that deployment? The
1: the first margin one was eight months.
0: Yeah. The, yeah. That for eight months straight in a condensed area. <laughs> it's well, just gonna like, go insane. Those two
1: are not like on the same page. Everybody knows it, especially once you're deployed and you all live ten feet away from each other, twenty four hours a day. Like everybody's gonna fucking know, and that just poisons the entire sense of like capability in the platoon like if you're on a football team i don't care how good you are if you see like your coach and your offensive coordinator or your coach and your quarterback like constantly like clearly disagreeing with each other and like just not clicking you're you're not going to fucking win you know for long at least right yeah it's just like i said that's like totally a matter of chance so i just got really lucky on both accounts, right, and then got lucky with the margin deployment. You know, like anytime I meet a younger three six guy, and they're like, "A oh, fucking margin," you know, like that would have been you. It could have just as easily have been you, and it just so happened that it was us. You know,
0: yeah. Whenever, whenever people uh would talk about like that that era of three six, everyone was always like, "Yeah, that was the last time three six was uh, amazing," and like fucking revered across the yeah. Marine Corps. <laughs>
1: the thing like um it did not always feel amazing to to be in three six on that first workup especially second workup was a lot better our our uh, battalion commander and sergeant major on the second deployment were really good and um we had we had some really good company commanders india's especially um on that second deployment opso was pretty good too you know like we we had a pretty we dealt a pretty decent hand and we we had so many guys staying from the first deployment so like guys were at least experienced
0: yeah that's definitely that definitely probably was reassuring to have that um no, but here's
1: what i'll say about experience because it I have been thinking about this a lot, like seeing the shit that guys are doing that I see like squads and platoons doing now training wise. Like we were talking about this earlier, like how fucking good it seems like guys are and how much more pride in like proficiency um, I see now, especially from like um, from a lot of the Instagram. Instagram have, like back then, the thing that was cool was, was being solved was literally just meant like you've been around for a while and deployed before but that has nothing to do with how actually demonstrably good you are or aren't and that was a real problem uh, especially on that 2009 workup it was a big problem
0: huh that's 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 interesting to think about the the year um and how old was everybody around you at that time? And how old were you at the time?
1: Oh, young. I I turned uh twenty four at in uh, Twenty Nine Palms and twenty five towards the end of the deployment. And and most guys, ninety percent of guys were younger than me. Most guys were like nineteen, twenty. 25. And they'd already had
0: a deployment to Iraq
1: uh very very few guys in the platoon had uh an Iraq deployment because the timing ended up being weird for uh, okay. between the Iraq deployment and the and the the last Iraq deployment and the Marsh deployment so most of the guys who'd been on that Iraq deployment not all but a, a lot um got out huh. and so in my platoon, Platoon sergeant had been to Iraq and Afghanistan, had a purple heart from the initial invasion. Staff Sergeant uh, Ryan Clay, fucking amazing dude, still one of my best friends. Um, and uh a fire team leader had been to Iraq, a squad leader had been to Iraq, another squad leader had been to Iraq, and that was about it. Third squad leader was a fast guy. Um yeah, I can think of like two fire team leaders who had like one Iraq deployment each.
2: Huh,
0: that's insane. The thing about though being so young, yeah, oh, it's fucking crazy. You know? it, it is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like it's wild Almost. as
1: fuck. But but then again, like there's a real advantage to having never been in combat before because you don't know how fucking shitty it's gonna be, so you're excited. Mm -hmm. Um, which you need to do, you know, you need to go into that as like amped up as we were. I mean, we, we got to Afghanistan right at the beginning of January and then we were at Leatherneck or Dwyer for the next uh, almost six weeks, like five weeks getting ready for this operation and like getting our big contingent. We got like a whole battalion of Afghans that partnered with us. And so we had to like train with them teach them the whole operation all that so by the time we went we were like fucking psychotic ready to go you know which is kind of hard to do if you know like oh this is going to be really fucking shitty this is going to be the coldest and wettest and tiredest and most bored and most scared I've ever been all at various points and sometimes all together for the next you know however long it's better not to have that going through your head
0: yeah no definitely what um when did you guys find out you guys were going to go to marja because i think uh the last the last person i talked to we mentioned that at first it wasn't really clear where you guys were going
1: yeah so um we went to 29 palms in july basically expecting we were going to go to Iraq and be the last infantry battalion in Iraq, and we're super, super depressed about it. Um, and then, I mean, there was there was always this percolating rumor that there was going to be this surge in Afghanistan and that everybody was going to get retasked. But, you know, people said shit all the time, and it didn't come true. And then at, at some point after we got back from Mojave Viper, we officially got like untasked from Iraq, and then it was like, "Oh fuck!" Well, now, now we're definitely going to Afghanistan, right? And then it was like, "Well, why haven't we gotten the mission yet?" So there was this weird holding pattern for like two months, and I remember it was right around Thanksgiving, like maybe mid to to late November, when we officially got the word, um, "We're we're doing it. We're on margin."
0: And what, how did everybody react?
1: Oh, I mean, we all went nuts. You know, like, holy shit.
0: Like, was it like in the middle of a work day
1: that everybody uh,
0: found out? or uh, No,
1: oh, I want to say it was like right before. This is why I keep thinking of Thanksgiving. I want to say it was like right before the 96. Um, we found out and then, uh, and then we went home to our families. And-
0: uh, oh, so like a formation they told
1: everybody. Man, yeah, what a good question. I'm surprised I don't remember exactly how it was passed. I'm, I'm sure it was at a formation probably at the company level. I feel like I remember my company commander
0: huh So then you said, uh okay, so then you guys ended up deploying a couple months later in January, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we thought it was going to be, like, right before New Year's Eve and ended up being right after.
0: Mm, okay. And then how was everybody feeling, like, going into it?
1: <clears throat> you know, pretty nervous. And then it seemed like it was taking forever, and it got exhausting to be that, like, amped up and nervous, you know, what felt like indefinitely. Because mm-hmm. you got to remember, like, by the time we actually went, when it was, uh, like, first – week of february we'd been like in like oh fuck we're about to go mode for like two and a half months um but it was cool man you know the closer it got the more real shit got the more assets we started getting you know we got to i think dwyer and we got our um eod guys uh ej pate and johnny morris who were like the of that whole certainly an india company in of that whole deployment if you if you were like hey who are the two fucking supermen it's those two um we we met them they started spinning us up on the ied threat and all the latest and greatest ttps and um you know then we got more assets and then we got the afghans and then we got new gear and um so it was busy uh and and pretty stressful at times but it was cool you know it was super
0: yeah definitely it definitely sounds like it and then um so and and what was the planning like uh leading up to that once you guys did uh find out and you came back from uh from the 96 uh what was that kind of like that first day like in the uh i guess in the office
1: so there we, there really was no mission planning that went on oh really okay. we had shit to do to get like to deploy you know we we did like three or four ranges in two weeks we were getting shots we were getting powers of attorney we were getting more shots. We were getting, uh, you know, deployment issue. We had to do block leave. So, like, I don't. Re- I here's what I recall: is right before they released us um, on block leave, they brought leadership, so like staff NCOs and officers into the ball, and they gave us basically like NS two brief on like this is what this is what the picture in Marja currently looks like and what we're expecting and and et cetera. And it included some pretty intense details about, you know, hey, here here's what we assess the IED saturation to be. So like Marja is basically a man-made oasis out in the middle of the desert in the middle of Hellman, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: big fucking canal dug off of the Hellman River uh loops around itself like a noose. Inside the noose is this grid of smaller canals. So you have this water saturated, you know, little mini out in the desert. So that's marginal. Well that big noose canal that goes around the outside is basically a moat, right? Well the moat only goes underground making like a, a crossable point by land at one point on the north half of the city. And that's where India Company was, that's what India Company was tasked with seizing. And uh, they showed us some pretty, pretty granular details about, hey, here's what we assess the saturation of the IED threat to be on this objective, you know, and there's like a red dot everywhere they think is a likely IED emplacement, in- and it looks like they just fucking spilled red paint all over the map, and then some pretty pretty extensive details. Uh, on in terms of like medical logistics, like this is the number of of bed spaces we have allocated at uh, you know field hospitals. This is the amount of this is the number of amputations we're prepared to treat in the first seventy two hours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was like intense numbers, you know. So we really? came out of there for huh. sure thinking like it's fucking on, like it is on, um, but.
0: How did that make you feel kinda and this was your, your first deployment, I assume?
1: Yep. Yep. First word got pushed in. I was still a second lieutenant when we deployed
0: And how how did you feel?
1: Uh, I made a very uh, like conscious decision for myself that uh,
2: I was gonna die on
1: that deployment. Because looking at like the the magnitude of that threat and what we were going to be tasked with um and what i was going to be expected to do or relied upon to do by the guys in the squad especially was such that i could not possibly do that job to the level that it needed to be done to do right by those guys uh if i was at the same time thinking oh fuck, i don't want to die you know if like if if we're pushing this objective and we got to get across this really shitty intersection that's getting hammered by a PKM down the road and I'm thinking like, okay, well we need to, you know, bound over this way but oh fuck, if I do, I don't want to get fucking shot, like I can't afford to hesitate like that, you know, even the few seconds that it takes to do that kind of waffling, like I can't afford, I'm fucking failing those guys if I'm doing that and I can't possibly avoid that if I Am in any way still uh, hoping to make it through this? So I have to like very conscientiously like accept the fact that I'm not gonna get through it, which I found to be really effective. Um, Yeah, I was was gonna ask
0: you, how did that translate to when you were in the moment?
1: uh, I think it. I think it. It was effective at its intended purpose. You know, uh, we performed well on D-Day. third uh third squad of third platoon was the first unit to take contact as far as certainly on the north half of the city um right after sunrise right as we were hitting the north edge of town uh a disca and a bunker opened up on them way way over on our left flank um and you gotta keep in mind at this point the platoon has 155 guys in it Seventy eight millions and seventy seven Afghans. We got fucking uh civil affairs, PsyOps, uh Fist, Anglico, Snipers, EOD, combat engineers, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this bunker lights up on them and it takes me a while to get way over to that flank. Um, but everybody fucking performed beautifully. Um we didn't take a single casualty uh the entire day and you know. If it, if it helped that I already figured I was going to die, then great. I was happy with the result.
0: And how many people did you, were you in charge of?
1: Uh, 155.
0: And just your platoon.
1: Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, we got. That's huge, insane. We got, I, it was like every day that we were at Leatherneck or Dwyer when we really were doing like the new shit mission planning um we would get a new asset you know
0: that is Um, fucking insane would
1: show up and now we gotta get briefed on what they can do and i mean it it really did get to the point where like practically speaking in terms of like maneuver on the ground it was like just get at the back of the fucking train dude because we were walking you know we got inserted by Hilo nine days in in advance i think um way up north of town us and lima company Um, and then a bunch of other units in the South, LAR, a company from one six, we basically like pushed in, um, on all sides over the course of nine days. And then on D-Day, uh, the other company from one six and ELO from three, six all flew in and landed on objectives, uh, throughout the
2: city.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So when you, okay. So when you guys first, first arrived though, um, what what was that like? Like landing there, getting off the plane, like those first like the first day or two?
1: Like in uh at, at Leatherneck and Dwyer or, or once yeah you inserted?
0: Like no, like once you once you guys like landed there at first when you first uh got to Afghanistan.
1: Um it was weird, man. It was weird and you know, you're sleep deprived, you've been flying and sleeping on cot in like fluorescent lit big tents for a week or longer. Um, and Now you're in Afghanistan and you're fucking nervous and you don't know where anything is and you got shit you got to do and you don't know where anything is and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, it felt not great at first. And in fact, when we were getting ready for the 2011 deployment, our battalion commander, uh, who was a prior enlisted guy, uh, Dan Schmidt, um, who the Marines really, really thought highly of, um, he was a fucking enlisted Marines battalion commander for sure. He had a warrior night at the end of a field oven. it was fucking freezing and snowed the whole time and we did a big pig roast. He got some insane special permission to give the entire company beer uh, and he, in the middle of the, the big like bonfire ceremony, has the pig's head on a stick and sucks its eyeball out of its head and swallows it. What the fuck? Who, who, goes, who goes absolutely apeshit. Um, what the fuck <laughs> anyway right before we left on that deployment he was like hey those of you who have already deployed you need to sit down with your uh with your new guys and you need to walk them through what this first couple weeks is going to be like what it like looks and feels like what are the details of this going to be like because you probably remember like how fucking weird and uncertain and anxiety producing it felt to be going through this whole weird you know new defining experience so give them the benefit of that and it won't feel as negative for them and they can hit the ground running which was fucking fantastic advice um but we didn't have that and so at first it definitely was like fucking you know this just feels i hope this starts feeling better soon which it did you know the closer it got the more amped up we got you know, the more real shit got
0: Yeah. That's fucking that's sick. And um so then when you guys got there and then you guys uh were stepping out and everything, what I guess what do you kind of feel like was everybody you know, really focused and dialed in, you know, I, I assume uh you guys said you, you hiked out there.
1: So we got flown out on, uh, 53, um, and inserted way up north of town. Um, way up north. I mean, we walk, we patrolled the better part of every day for like nine days, um, and then the sun would start to go down. We would dig fighting holes, you know, set in a company defense. Um, and then probably you know start getting mortar or rocketed in the middle of the night. Have to get up and move, or it would fucking rain and your hole would fill up all night while you and dude next to you fucking spoon for dear life. Um, yeah, that part fucking sucks. Oh, like geez. if you ever hear guys, yeah. if you ever hear like India or Lima guys talking about shaping, um, that that's what that nine day phase was—the shaping phase, it was just like slogging through. The barren brown desert, uh, slowly walking towards Marja all day uh, in the heaviest gear imaginable. Um, you ever see pictures of the flak that guys had back then? Like the big boxy, like bomb squad suit looking thing? Mm-hmm. We had those on. Uh, everybody fucking hated them. Yeah. So, add all day, dig a fighting hole. Sit in and get rained on, get shelled, get up, move, dig it again, etc. And then we got to town and the fight started and got people.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, what did what did those uh, nine days, dude? Everybody's kind of morale and you know, just the headspace okay.
1: crushed it. Um, I mean, it was I cannot emphasize how cold it was. It was oh yeah, insanely cold. Um it got to the point where it was like it felt a lot more like an exercise in endurance than any kind of like pursuit of the enemy. You know, like we'd catch a rocket from way far away and, you know, if some drone got it later, you know, great. We certainly didn't hear about it. We certainly weren't, didn't have any ability to go get those guys on foot. um, And then dig and freeze get up, walk, dig. Um, this this sounds like fucking old-timer bullshit, but legitimately for, for the majority of that eight or nine days, definitely for the majority of a week, I don't think I was ever really fully asleep.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense.
1: Like anybody who says they'd rather be really hot than really cold hasn't been cold enough.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I always think about that. I, I used to think about that all the time uh, when I'd be in the field, well, and it was either extremely like, cold Grisport or extremely or, hot. Norway was like, horrible. Norway or... Yeah, Norway was horrible. Yeah,
1: I, fucking, I never did any, like, genuine Arctic shit like that. It sucked. I always wanted to. Know. It was
0: horrible. It was not fun. <laughs> you say that. It was not fun. <laughs> That's
1: the thing, though, is that, like, guys now are actually getting to train – on all of this shit, that for us, like, if we ever did it, it was like a station, like one day of a week long round robin at 29 Palms. You know, like, guys were never going to the mountains. You'd hear about like one battalion a year that somehow lucked into a Bridgeport deployment. Lucked um, into. the West Coast.
0: Yeah. Lucked <laughs> I mean, into. Of us, the, rest- the rest of us <laughs> was
1: literally just like Lejeune, Lejeune, Lejeune. Twenty-nine palms, AP Hill, thrown in there in the middle of things somewhere.
0: Yeah, I guess that definitely gets stale.
1: Oh man, it got it was bad. Um, especially when you're hearing all this shit about like how different Afghanistan is. Um, turns out, like the version of Afghanistan that we'd been hearing about was really different from what we actually encountered. Up until that point, everybody was only ever talking about like all this crazy shit up in the mountains. Um, you know, like lone survivor. And, all that shit but that was that's way out east in the army's ao and we just ended up in like flat brown farm fields and canals everywhere
0: and do you think that everything you guys did uh in the workup do you think that was um a good preparation for uh afghanistan
1: it was good preparation in the sense that like yeah we were definitely confident we could do most of the things that we needed to do in retrospect um we we should have been so much better at a lot of things um but i think what it gave us more importantly was really fucking good cohesion and really good leaders especially at the squad level squad and fire team um who really really worked well together they had spent a lot of fucking time suffering together and you know being dealt shitty hands and dealing with them and so when we encountered the insane variety of unexpected challenges that you deal with in combat like guys were able to roll with those punches pretty well
0: huh okay yeah i was kind of wondered that what uh what everybody, uh, kind of thought of all the training leading up to, to it all. Um, I mean,
1: we were at a, in terms of a, like, evaluated competency level, I, I pretty strongly believe, um, platoons and squads now are way ahead of where we were. I mean, like, I see fucking, uh, Thirty ones shooting Mark Nineteens indirect now. I see that shit all the time on Instagram. That oh yeah, yeah, we got shown once at IOC, and it was like, hey, just so you know, you can technically do this. And it was almost like a, you, you you're a real big dick motherfucker if you're if you have a platoon that can ever actually do this. I never saw it done again. I'll put it that way. Like guys, just and and units did not have the time. To train to the level
0: that you guys can and, and you can tell yeah i was gonna say so what was it like uh being in at that time with because um, you talked about like the state of the the infantry from uh from iraq going in towards uh like afghanistan you said it was kind of like a shift
1: yeah yeah so like I can't remember if this was before we started recording or not, but I was telling you, like, it seems now from, like, an old guy's outside perspective that there is a lot more of a culture in the infantry of, like, pride and proficiency. Like, it's fucking cool to be good at your job, to be in shape and good at your job to an extent that was not the case, certainly when I got to the fleet in 09. When I got to the fleet, what was cool was who could skate the most. And I'm certain that there is still a component of that going on. Yeah, in, it's still yeah, pretty good. But it was, like, in depth, especially among the more senior guys, like the fucking, you know, senior Lance community. These guys who had been to Iraq once, maybe twice, um, who a lot of them had this attitude of, like, you can't tell me shit. I don't need to train on shit because I'm fucking salty and I've been to war and you haven't. And like you know, so this shit's gay, i'm gonna I'm gonna find way out of this or like onto some skate detail, and you know you're certainly never going to see me like training all these many, many, many young guys we have or demonstrating my actual proficiency. Um, so that was like it's been cool to see that shift over time. and in particular, once we got the Marja orders and the closer the possibility of, of going to Afghanistan got um you know that really fell away and a lot of those you know salty i don't have to do shit guys had gotten out by that point so it was really just those of us who were going to deploy
0: huh yeah that's that's crazy because um it's kind of like it was kind of like that when i was when i was in um there was a lot of uh there's a lot of that same stuff but i don't know it kind of just comes and goes i guess i don't know
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, organizational culture is, like, a really fucking tricky thing. You know, like, a lot of times morale is largely affected by things that are outside of your control. Like, those, the senior Lances who got out, and, like, to be clear, a lot of those guys got out because the timing of those deployments got fucked up. Like, our orders to be, you know, the last battalion in Iraq got canceled post-29 Palms. So we ended up in this weird holding pattern where we weren't really sure where we were going or when we were going to deploy. And these guys, a lot of these guys' contracts ran out. And they were like, well, I'm not going to re-enlist to maybe see if we're going to go to Afghanistan at some point eventually. I've been doing this for four years
2: already. <laughs> yeah, I no, for um... sure. <clears throat> Excuse me.
1: Sorry, I, I, I don't know if that entirely uh, answers the question, but it does I
0: don't know, so, what did you just say? It's kind of, you kind of get muffled at times.
1: Oh, my bad, man. My, uh, I shouldn't hold AirPods up into the washing machine. I'm going to put you on my phone. Oh, okay. Is that better, man? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, there was, there was not the same culture of like really wanting to be good at your job. And it was hmm. like, instead the culture was, well, I gotta be good at my job. You know, I already have a combat action ribbon, especially if a guy already had a combat action ribbon. and it was like, you can't tell me shit. That's um,
0: interesting because when we were in people would be uh, doing that same shit, but it would be because like, they're like, well, what the fuck's the point? Like we're not, you know we're not deploying we're not doing shit so we always figured that like back then you guys had more reason to uh to want to train and like do do everything every day
1: i mean it it shifts so fast though you know like what really matters is whatever happened on your last deployment and who has stuck around since then um like a lot of those guys who had like the you can't tell me shit attitude like it wasn't their fault that they had a battalion, uh, Sergeant Major especially, who'd really made their lives fucking miserable on the last deployment to Iraq, which had not been, I think, a very good one uh, in a lot of guys' impression. It was a lot of, like, not very much happening, and then some really bad shit happening, and then a lot of, you know, more not, not a lot of shit happening. Um, and then the Sergeant Major stuck around, you know, so, like, my morale would be shitty, too if I had been dealing with that and I would, I spent the whole next workup up thinking, Oh, we're going to be the last battalion to go to Iraq. Yeah.
0: To yeah. To clean nothing. up.
1: Yeah. To do cleanup. And like, not for nothing at this point is 2009. Camp Lejeune Victor units have been deploying nonstop for the better part of a decade at this point, you know, mm-hmm. like, that's a pretty insane operating tempo to sustain for that long.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. And and I mean it showed like the Libo incidents all over Onzo, <clears throat> Onzo County every weekend were insane. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like
0: what? <laughs>
1: oh my god, man. Um, like a company commander throwing a guy through the window of the sandbar in Surf nice. City on a Friday night. Um you know like i'm sure this still happens but like guys were wrecking their bikes every weekend um i what here's okay here's my favorite one there was a doc and lima company uh who came to india company on our second deployment i won't share his name um <laughs> fucking love this guy this is one of my favorite stories ever gets shit faced um leaves the barracks middle of the night on the weekend Goes over. First, he tries to steal a tank. Um, can't figure out how to get into a tank slot because it's locked. And he's like, ah, I bet the 3.6 motor T lot won't, won't be locked. They're all fucked up. Sure enough, it was not locked. So he gets in there. He gets a Humvee. He drives the Humvee over to H1 oh To the my fucking God. building, plows into like four cars in the parking lot. What? Gets out breaks a window into the building, (laughs) goes to the second deck where the fucking general's office is, sprays the fire extinguisher all up and down the hallway. Oh, no. Runs out. At this point, uh, PMO is in hot pursuit, (laughs) makes it all the way back to the barracks, and apparently, like, would have escaped successfully, like without them ever knowing who he was. Oh but apparently God. he like fell and, at some point, like basically <laughs> right at the barracks and passed out and they found him there. <laughs> and here's the thing that guy's still what deployed. The fuck?
0: That, that guy is still insane.
1: deployed. Here's here's another like good like oh metric I can God. give you. There
2: That's were so well. many
1: guys doing drugs in three six when I got there. We basically lost a full day of work a week every week for the better part of like definitely for the better part of like two months. Um, piss testing,
0: dude. We did piss tests too non stop for like four or five months. It was every day, sometimes twice a day, uh, for like months. It was retarded, it was so stupid, dude.
1: Well, and I and I get the impression that there's like just a very different. Uh, to the extent that there's like a drug culture in the Marine Corps, I feel like I get the impression that it's very different now. Like, guys doing steroids was really not much of a thing at all until I got to recon. I get the impression <laughs> now, like it's fucking all over the place.
0: Ricky recons all fucking shooting up. That's not surprising. well. Like but any we that. any
1: of these like soft type units, yeah. Who that have uh 18 deltas for corpsmen or medics like the guys who go to like the two-year school at Fort Bragg uh-huh. they all now that means in their team or their platoon they have a guy who has <coughs> like the training and competency to be like hey uh here's how you do steroids and that's crazy with, with like the tempo that those guys were operating at and the missions that they were doing especially like in the early days it w- there was a pretty good case to be made that like yeah, these guys are more survivable if they're doing steroids. So we're just going to turn a really? blind eye to them. Like back then, I don't know if it's still the case, but back then, um, the standard drug test battery uh, would not test for steroids. So the only way to test a guy for steroids was to like basically by name him to be like, hey, give that guy a steroid test in addition to the regular piss test. And so commanders were just like, I just won't do that. But like once you have established that precedent that like, hey, you guys are special and you have to do a special job and you're you being so special and doing your special job means that you get to break some of the rules because they don't really apply to you because you're so special. Well, once you set that precedent, now that guy in his head is like, well, that means that if I encounter a rule that I really have a compelling reason to break, I just kind of get to. So like all the stories you see now about like SEALs and Delta Force guys like getting caught with cocaine and like killing each other over drug deals and shit like that's how that shit started.
0: Huh. Yeah. That
1: that's all uh, non-stop for 20 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely that too.
1: Um Yeah, we we rabbit holed
0: but uh what um where did we Oh okay so we we were like right about you guys were right about to get into the city what um what so what was that like i guess uh once you get once everything did kind of pick up after those 9 days
1: and then so we got to like our last uh you know our our last position before like we started the push and the sun was going down and the expectation was, you know, at some point in the night we were going to start moving in. And then we waited and waited and waited and got the word. I mean, this shit was being, like, planned and coordinated up at, like, the, the like, ISAF NATO commander and President Karzai level. So we got the word at literally, like, midnight. Karzai decided he wants to wait a day so like f- fucking great now we're just gonna sit around i guess um so we spent the whole next day just like waiting um and then the following night we finally got the go ahead and we went in um and like right at sunrise we got into the first kind of first rows of buildings and farmhouses at the edge of town and then the fight started immediately
0: and what was that like uh, for you
1: um, it was, it was fucking wild. I mean, so I still was, uh, like just pushing up to where the, the building started to get, to get dense. And, you know, we got 155 guys who so were spread across like a couple hundred meters in either direction. Um, and third squad is way, way out third squad whose squad leader is on his first deployment. Uh, or first combat deployment, at least. He was a fast guy.
2: Uh-huh. Um,
1: Corporal Primo. Their squad gets lit up by this uh, dishka in a bunker. And um, so I'm hauling ass trying to get over there. I'm, wearing, I'm weighing, or wearing like 90 pounds worth of shit. We have these massive flax on. We've been carrying everything that we've been living off of for the last week other than chow. Um, so I'm hauling ass. And it's all muddy tilled farm fields. So it's like a slog for, you know, a good 200 meters to get up to this berm where they've taken cover. I thought at least, I I thought we had taken at least one casualty already because the, we take contact and I'm, and I'm running, I'm on the radio with, uh, lance corporal garcia is the first fire team leader and he's given me this sit rep and all of a sudden i just hear a yell and the radio cuts out so i think all right there's at least one casualty and the whole time i'm like i i keep hearing that like adrenaline's gonna kick in and like i'm not gonna feel like any exhaustion or anything i'm just gonna fucking go robot mode like when is that gonna happen because like it is so fucking hard to haul ass across this like muddy ass field with all this bullshit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I finally get up there and uh, you know, start working the fight with those guys. Our two forties got up at the same time. Um, my favorite machine gunner of all time, uh Lance Corporal Klepsig, aka kill pig. He fucking plops down next to me on this berm. Rips off this burst with his 240. He's smoking a cigarette. He's like, Hey, sir, you want a Marlboro Red? What the I'm fuck? like, I've never wanted a fucking cigarette so bad in my life. Uh-huh. And he gives it to me. Um, I go through it in like two seconds. And, um, you know, machine guns are working at this point. Javelins get up there. Uh, air is being talked on by the fist team. I mean, this is fucking full like range 400 level shit you know we got gun trucks we got air overhead we got javelins we've got you know every asset other than weapons company you know and we've got heavy guns on our trucks and uh javelins bullseye this bunker and then we keep pushing into the city and uh you know getting actually like taking that objective um you know the the crossing point into the north end of town was really the rest of the day
0: and how did it feel being in command of just all that shit
1: um i mean it was it was insane there was no like there was no reasonable way to like maneuver that many people especially assets that you're getting like a week before you ld you know we had 155 guys like nine different you know, maneuver units or assets or attachments or whatever. So there definitely gets a point where you're like, just get in the back, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the squads could fucking maneuver their asses off, but everybody else was kind of just like, stay in the back. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you when we need your special thing. Unless it was like snipers, they knew what to do. They're awesome. Especially once we got like into the city, they just did work all day
0: and how a, uh oh sorry what
1: was i was gonna say there's a picture um that like uh is one of like the you know typical like marine corps scout sniper pictures that gets put up all the time um i feel like i've seen it in like recruiting commercials and marine corps times and shit It ran on the cover of the marine corps times i think the next week and it's uh sniper attached to India, company with his Barrett, like you can see his Barrett right up at the top of the roof, and him behind it, and he's shooting into the city. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, work. I think I've
0: seen that picture. Yeah, yeah, that's that's sick though.
1: But like in terms of how it felt, you know, like that's where you want to if you're going to join the Marine Corps and become an infantry officer, like there is no place that you want to be on Earth than that, you know. Um, so that was, like, the overriding feeling for sure was, like, I can't fucking believe that, like, we're really getting to do this. Um, but it also got, like, pretty shitty pretty quick. Um, bottom line, though, I mean, like, it was exactly where we all wanted to be. I'm a, I'm, I'll put it this way. I'm a huge Saints fan. Saints won the fucking Super Bowl four days before Mardi Gras started, and I missed it to sit in a fucking fighting hole and get rained on spoon in my RTO. And I was still like, ah, I, I wouldn't trade it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Damn. And so how, how was it, I guess, day to day after you guys did get into the city? Is it just constantly, was it just constantly kinetic or was there ever any like real lulls?
1: So that, yeah, there was, there was definitely a lull. The first, the better part of the first month. Definitely the first, like, three weeks. It was pretty full-on. You know, it was a couple days of really, like, building to building. Um, It wasn't a lot of fighting close. It was a lot of fighting, like, the you're in the courtyard of this little farm, and then there's, like, a 200-yard wide field, and on the other side of that is another canal and another little farm, and they're over there, you know. Um, Really, I don't remember any anything closer than a hundred meters. Um, But then there was, even after that, there was a lot, the better part of like a month of like moving, moving, moving. Um, We pushed further South and then we got uh, tasked to seize this big IED factory. And then we had to go clear this other like outer part of town. Um, But then there was a lull and uh there got to be a point i want to say around like march maybe like three months in where we distributed out into fixed positions um and then we started like daily patrol ops and things really kind of changed and then the fighting season started and things really really changed
0: and how did the uh how did the people kind of treat you guys when you
1: guys got there like we were from fucking space oh really I mean, like, there had not been Americans there in decades. I mean, this place could not be more remote. The Afghan, like, soldiers who were with us, who we, you know, lived with, spent all day with, they'd, like, talk about it like pissed. They'd be like, I can't fucking believe that you've come all the way around the world to my country. It's probably the only time you'll ever come here, and the only part of it that you get to see is this, like, bumblefuck like middle of nowhere shithole. And they're talking about like all these like beautiful things and places like elsewhere in Afghanistan. It's like, yeah, sorry. We got the flat Brown part. So, I mean, they were, these people were all almost without exception farmers who lived in houses made of like mud essentially, and farmed a little crop of poppy in front of their little mud house. That was it. Huh. They might have a cell phone, and that is like the only like, I only remember... vestige of like 21st century life that they have.
0: It's interesting you say that, because I remember when I was growing up, I remember seeing this thing on YouTube where this guy was uh, interviewing random Afghans, and they were asking them about uh, 9-11, and some of them didn't even know what the fuck
1: 9-11 was. Uh, not one person in the entire city of marja i don't think could have told you uh what september 11th was maybe like uh if you got lucky and found the right elder um i mean like you could tell them i had a buddy who showed an afghan an, an afghan soldier um like ostensibly somebody from another part of the country Where like maybe he's had like a little bit more connection in the world showed him a picture like cut out of a magazine from a scene in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Yeah, check it out, man. This is why we came to Afghanistan cuz there's dinosaurs in America. These see these big these big fucking scary things. Yeah, they're in America and we're, we we got to deal with them over there, so we came here to get away from them." And the guy's like, "No fucking way." Like, <laughs> "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing, like they were incredibly isolated.
0: People. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. They
1: just had like they'd give you the clothes off their back. They would have you into their home. They would cook for you. They'd sit and talk with you. Um, they would cooperate if they felt like they could do it safely, which they basically couldn't. Um, they were incredible people and like the hardest people you'll ever meet bar none. Um, and that goes for like the, the ANA guys that we served with too, um, Afghan army, like, there were some guys who were shitheads and, you know, who didn't want to do anything. And then there were guys who, like, saved Marines' lives. And certainly guys who gave their own lives. Third Platoon net didn't take one KIA the entire deployment, but we lost Afghans for sure. Uh-huh. Um, I, only, I say that because uh, after things ended last year, I, I heard and saw a lot of talk about, like, Afghan... Cowardice, or like, why, why didn't they, you know, uh defend their own country? And like, that shit's all at the generals' level, man. Like the Afghans, like fighting on the ground, these guys lost thirty times more casualties than we did. Oh yeah, no, I've fight seen fight that. They, they had like, awesome. yeah,
0: yeah, no. So I, I remember uh, seeing a lot of shit about that where it was like, I don't even want to look it up. How many of them did die? Because it was a lot, and people. <laughs> People always say that they didn't fucking care, but I mean, obviously they did, if that many of them were dying over it.
1: Well, and like, you know, especially in the months leading up to uh, Kabul falling, you know, you'd hear about like such and such uh, Afghan army outpost, you know, abandoned. And like the detail that always seemed to get left out of that story is like, well, those guys fucking stayed and fought until they were out of ammo and asked for more and asked for more fuel and asked for more food from their chain of command and just stopped getting it, you know? So at a certain point, like, is this just supposed to be a suicide mission for these guys when clearly their own chain of command is out to lunch?
0: Yeah. It's insane. It's fucking insane. Seeing that whole thing, just watching that whole thing happen on TV and then having, um, a buddy that was there and then getting messages and shit of it happening and just watching it it, it was insane and then like thinking to myself uh like it, this was the shit that i grew up watching and was a big reason why i joined the marine corps and it's all ending like this and it's
1: like dude what the fuck and it, it was insane oh yeah i mean it could not have been more insane and like so so I got pretty involved with that whole episode because I had a bunch of Terps who had worked with us in Afghanistan, who I was either trying to get them out or family members of theirs. And um, so, you know, I'm talking with their families in Kabul and trying to let them know where Taliban checkpoints are. And I'm in signal chats trying to like get word passed on where the checkpoints are and also talking with marines who are inside the wire who are doing all this you know hey have the guy hold up this sign at this gate etc cetera, etc cetera. um and doing all that right up until the fucking blast went off um Jeez. yeah i mean like could not you i'll say this like the the marja stuff and Sangin and um you know Fallujah. like pick your pick your famous war story I don't know of anything that I have personally heard of like Marines of like the modern generation doing that is more uh, demanding and severe uh, a test than what the guys went through at HKIA. Guys and women, I should say, from, uh, what was that, 1-8 and 2-7? Uh, 1-8
0: uh, and two one yeah
1: yeah that's right two one two one um i mean to stand up on the fucking wall or to to man those gates and yeah. you know have have people telling you like well can you at least like take my kid you know like i yeah. really do anything. Like that, man. and like the,
0: the what's insane for me too is their whole headspace because just the, the last four or five years in the Marine Corps, it's just deployments out to Japan, Norway, fucking Muse. You know, what I mean, it, you know, you get kind of used to it. And then um, all of a sudden these guys are just hanging out and fucking wherever the fuck, some of them are on ship. And then I think the other unit was uh, out in Kuwait. And then all of a sudden they're thrown into complete fucking hell, seeing like the most, fucking barbaric atrocities happening in front of them and they can't do anything and then they're being told they have to work with the same people doing that shit in front of them
1: and then oh and the entire time like it's really only a matter of time before what did happen happens. you know like this is not an ECP that we were able to set up in like a deliberate way with all the standoff and all like the you know, structure that, that it should have. Like we don't have any standoff from these people. Like the, the crowd starts, you know, a foot in front of my face. Right. And so like if a person, you know, with a vest or whatever can get through that crowd and what are you going to do? And all of those Marines, you know, might've done a UDP before probably their first deployment, you know, held that line the whole time. That's that's pretty uh that meant that certainly meant a lot to me as somebody like looking at the younger generation and like you were saying, wondering like how has it affected the Marine Corps to not be going to war uh all the time like we were. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can't I can't imagine a a more definitive answer to that question than the way uh those Marines conducted themselves uh that week on the ground you know
0: yeah no yeah they did the impossible They really did the impossible um yeah um did you guys at the time did you guys ever foresee anything like that happening did you guys ever think that afghanistan would end uh in, in another way
1: uh we didn't have a lot of confidence that uh, we did We certainly didn't have a lot of confidence that um, the uh, war was going to end the way it was being advertised that it would end. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: we, it, like the the things that were being advertised by uh, leadership many levels above us about like what was being achieved and had the shape that the afghan government and military were going to take and you know there was going to be this like stable western style democracy in afghanistan like never really had any confidence of that um i thought even back then like oh there's there's probably a halfway decent outcome here where like this place just ends up like an uneasy truce among a bunch of like regional warlords who you know might call themselves Taliban one day and not Taliban the next day. Um, that's what this place wants to be, you know. And we're fooling ourselves uh, if if we think it's going to take any other shape. And
0: I guess so while you guys were moving through Marja, did did things improve at some point? And what what caused that if it did?
1: Um. They didn't improve over the course of our deployment. They got steadily worse. Um, so the fighting season started in uh, on April twenty eighth, and it was it was on at that point and got steadily worse. So by August, when two nine came to rip with us, um, I mean we were taking pretty significant contact most days somewhere the night that that they showed up to our patrol base so you know we got like 130 marines milling around uh we got hit by machine guns in two different positions on two ends of our patrol base across the canal from us you know it was it was never really not on and and two nine honestly i think in a lot of ways um had it worse than us <clears throat> they, they didn't have any time to like get their feet under them. Um, two, six of Italian that ripped out with one, six, uh, to our South who I, that was most guys from my IOC class went there. Um, so I knew a lot of those dudes and, um, two of their squad leaders during Advon got killed. Um, oh, shit. you know, th- uh, from the same company. Like imagine you're on day negative 10 and that's already what you're dealing with. But you were asking about like seeing things get better. Um, when we came back the following year, it was like a different place. Um, truly like night and day. And we had expected like, oh, we're, we're, fuck, we're going back to Marja. It's going to be all that shit all over again. Cause it had been for two, nine But right towards the end of 2-9's deployment um, and then throughout 3-9's deployment, who replaced them and who we then replaced, um, SF came in and implemented this program. Like uh, Green Berets came in and rolled out this program where they basically – a lot of the Taliban – quote-unquote Taliban, who we would get shot at by, or, you know, even, like, a lot of the guys putting in IEDs. There is guys who needed a job, you know, and Taliban came in and said, hey, we'll pay you this, um, and if you say no, we'll kill you. All we need you to do is kind of shoot at the guys in helmets when you see them. You know, shoot at them a little That's bit, and then, like, insane. drop your gun if you want and run away. Or, like, hey, <laughs> let us hide this shit in your house. Or, what you know, go put this. Go dig a hole in the road and put this shit in it. You know, t- there were varying degrees of commitment, but a lot of a lot of people were like, "I'm you know, 16 years old. I live in Marja on a dirt farm. Yeah, how many options come in? And like, yeah, exactly. Um, and the and the guys who buy all my dad's poppy show up and are like, "Hey, here's a gun and a job, and you can't really say no." So. Uh, now there was, there was a like hardcore contingent who came in once the fighting season started in the summer who were like Pakistanis and they were down for the jihad for sure. But you knew the difference right away, which ones you were dealing with. Um, so SF went around to all these kind of just like local, not super committed guys. And were like, Hey, here's the deal. Um, what the Taliban's paying you, uh, we're going to triple it. Uh, You don't have to put a uniform on. You don't have to fight for us. You don't have to give us your gun. You're just neighborhood security now. Don't shoot at these guys anymore. And don't really let anybody shoot at anybody. And like overnight kinetic activity inside of the city went to like virtually nothing. Really? So just uh, all these
0: guys were just like down to do like neighborhood security type of thing?
1: They just wanted money. You know, like, that that was the basic thing about, like, dealing, like, establishing relations with the civilian population was, like, these people did not care about the Taliban or 9-11 or Osama bin Laden or anything else or democracy uh, or Afghanistan, the country. They're literally, like, I would like to not get killed today. Uh, and I would like to have enough to eat. Oh my Uh, God. And, and, you know, I would like my, my wife to be respected. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, and so we'd go to them and be like, Hey, we're the Americans. We're here to help. We want to dig a well in your town and do this and that. Um, but you got to help us. You got to let us know who's putting in these IEDs. And they'd be like, well, if I don't tell you, are you going to cut my head off? Because if I do tell you after you leave the Taliban is going to come and they're going to cut my head off. So like, that's your competition. Yeah, Uh, They would, you know Uh, like you'd find a fucking head floating down the canal. And there was only so much that we could do to compete with that. we could go out and, and, you know, try to make life hard on the enemy, but um, they were, they were willing to enact a level of brutality that we weren't, you know, and rightfully so like, I don't want to be the guys that are cutting people's fucking heads off. Yeah. Um, But like, they didn't, they didn't care who won. They really wanted to be left alone. And their standard for being left alone is basically like, don't kill me. And if I have like a land dispute with my neighbor, like, can you just like decide it fairly? That's mm-hmm. about what they needed.
0: And so I guess, so being the platoon commander, you you interacted with the uh what what were they call themselves the, uh, the the elders?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like there was a couple different kind of like positions of prominence. Um, there were there were village elders. There were guys who owned you know larger tracts of land. Um, like I said, everybody farmed. So the, you know there might be one guy who owns like. 10 farms worth of land that 10 families farm on that guy's, you know, a pretty big deal. One, actually one of the most like influential people that you wanted to get, uh, like in good with, uh, was called the Mirab, who was basically like the water broker. He, he was the guy who, who kept the schedule of like, which cana- which gates on which canals get opened on which days. It's like the, these farms get water today. These farms get water tomorrow these farms got too much water last month so they skipped this round which meant like he dealt with everybody which meant he knew what was going on with everybody huh yeah
0: and how did they how do they do that shit it's just like irrigation systems or something cuz i don't know I, I just assumed they uh they don't yeah, got too so, much to work with
1: so it got you know governed. there there was just like in the States, you know, there were like decisions made at higher levels about, you know, more sophisticated dams on the, on the bigger, like natural rivers, like the Hellman. Um, but the, the big canal all the way, all the way around the city would get flooded. Um, and there were times when it was totally dry and there were times when it was full uh, and it would, it would, it would, different parts of the city would receive water off of that based on what these mirab guys were doing, like which, which canals they were opening and closing to to get fed water. Cause if you opened them all at the same time, there's not enough water running around the big
2: Mm, canal. got to kind of
1: portion it out. That was like, basically the like heartbeat of commerce in the entire city was like, who's getting water and how are people's crops doing? And why, why was it heroin producing poppy?
0: Oh, okay. And, and why was it the last uh, stronghold for the Taliban? Like what made it so, uh, I guess, special for them to hold out in there as opposed to somewhere the poppy. else? Oh, really? <laughs> the poppy, oh, yeah. the, the finance, whole, everything?
1: Yeah, that whole irrigation system made this perfect. I mean, so USAID built that whole system in the 50s. Um, like America used to be like deeply involved in, you know, Afghan commerce and agriculture and all kinds of shit. So like this was a well-designed, well-built irrigation system that created a pretty perfect farming oasis out in the middle of the desert that just so happens to have a fucking moat around it. So, um, it was a huge, it was the hub of their poppy production from which they, Hmm. um, made the heroin that financed them.
0: It's the same system since the nineteen fifties as they're still using it today.
1: Oh yeah. I mean it's it's shit dug in the earth. It's not what the it's fuck? Like houses. Man, these mud houses, you could shoot a 50 cal at the side of one of these things and it would be like, you know, like it looks a little chipped. Are you serious? It's that we, packed we down? We spent a while, like we we like went to lengths to figure out like what's the best way to like bust a hole. In one of these if that's what we have to do and it's made like everything is made by hand and with hand tools,
0: huh so they've just packed down this fuck. i assume they make like clay or something and they just pack it down that that
1: fucking yeah. jesus yep. and it's got you know straw mixed into it and shit. um and i'm sure there's finer points to it that uh that i don't know or understand but you know like i remember um we were driving at one point early on and like trying to take a tight corner and we clipped the corner of this guy's like mud wall around his field and like knocked down that little section of it. So I get out, I feel all bad. And I, and I go over to the farmer, I see him in the field and uh, at the, at I think the platoon commander, yeah, at the platoon commander and above level, you would get this allocation of money like cash mm-hmm. that, uh, was called SERP funds. I think like commander's emergency response program. It was basically like, Hey, if you, if you fucked something up, if you, if your mind roller runs over somebody's car, if you knock a wall over or whatever, if you need to use somebody's house for the night, here's money that you can use to like make it right, but you've got to document it and all that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so i went over to be like hey i'm so sorry you know what can we do and he's like don't even worry about it man and i was like well fuck no i mean we like knock down your your whole wall and he's like this is all through the interpreter obviously but he's like i mean look around you i'm moving dirt around over here today and i was moving dirt around over there yesterday um i was gonna move dirt around over there tomorrow and instead i'll work on the wall and i don't say and that's not in like a like condescending way like this guy's just like scratching around the dirt all day he just had this very like you care. know like hey i i i work all day i work every day i'm i there's i guess i'll just do that instead what would i even do with your money and there's probably also an element of like there's a decent chance that if i take your money somebody's going to show up in the middle of the night and want to talk to me about it so between that and not really having any Financial ambitions beyond this life that I already have here, you know, and how life did in...
0: they how did other people find out if they took uh the money
1: um you know like like any small town, any rural community everybody knows everybody talk. it's pretty it's pretty conspicuous which houses the guys in the fucking camouflage and helmets who walk around in groups of fifteen. Um, you know, there's not a lot of good ways to disguise that you've gone into somebody's house to talk.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then, um, huh. And how many times did you guys have to uh use that?
1: Oh, the funds? Yeah. That often? Like I said, like, there wasn't wasn't a lot of like appetite for him. And also we we're pretty careful in general.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so not often, you know, there was a the where we built our one of the two patrol bases um that we worked out of was on a guy's land. And so we paid him, I think I gave him a pretty, pretty significant chunk of money, of Afghan money at least, um, like twice. And then there was like occasional little things like that, you know, like, "Hey, you guys uh, were searching my farm, and you like knocked over the dividing wall in our little sheep pen." Okay, you know, like I was pretty, yeah. pretty big on like, "We're not here to fucking shove anybody around." Right. That was definitely a thing that could creep in pretty quick. Um it's like a weird psychological thing to watch happen that like you get into that environment and there's definitely a, a a contingent of people that just can't help falling into this kind of like, I'm the prison guard. You're the inmates mentality of, you know, like, why are you talking to that guy that way? Like Mm -hmm. it's just a farmer who we happen to pass on patrol, you know? Right. So I, I was pretty, uh, pretty big on like, Hey, we're not ever going to do anything here that we would be embarrassed if our parents were watching us. And that includes like how, how fairly we treat these people. So I'd go out of my way. But even then, like we, we didn't use it often.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: It was a pain in the ass to, to have because I had to fucking count it all the time and like send paperwork to battalion.
0: Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. Goddamn
1: the counting of shit constantly.
0: Yeah. I mean, as a fucking, how many, you had 150 people in your platoon?
1: uh well i mean i wasn't like accountable for afghan gear so i was accountable for for ultimately five squads snipers eod engineer you know it was it was
0: that's a long ass
1: between like 70 and 100 guys
0: that's oh yeah insanely long long. And you know like every EDL other list. week
1: somebody's showing up and they're like oh hey here's this new ied jammer you got uh six of them and they each have a duffel bag full of SL3 signed for this. What the fuck? Like, oh, fuck! All right. How do we even use this? Like, oh, yeah. there's a manual in there. Oh, yeah. Here's a manual. That was nonstop. That's another Damn. reason why, like, I look at guys now and I'm like, I can just tell that you guys, like, you, obviously your gear is better, but you also like actually get to develop the full capabilities of the shit. Like, what I see guys doing now with like the fucking drones and everybody's got a little iphone flipped down on their flack like
0: i still don't know what the fuck those things do i don't, I don't know if it's their actual phone or if it's yeah, an actual little fucking lot of Tinder going on yeah I, I don't know if there's fucking i don't know if that's a legit like little fucking war tablet thing i don't know what the fuck it does
1: well there, i mean there's definitely like it's definitely one of those things for which like there are some guys who are like this is like a cool soft like marsoc navy seal thing to do yeah. so like i'm gonna i'm gonna like Minicate. stretch a reason why i need <laughs> yeah yeah no for sure it's like half the time i'd see guys wearing one of those like desert scarves like a shemagh. oh yeah like, i know you're fucking hotter wearing that
0: yeah yeah no no, no. yeah and uh when we were out in itx in july of uh 2018 it was hot as hell. I didn't even know what the fuck those got used for at first because when I got one, uh everybody was kind of telling me about how you get it wet and you wear it and then it keeps you cool. And then um yeah, I remember being on the seven tons and that helped a lot because it kept the uh Yeah, fucking there's dust. like a
1: way to, to use it. Yeah. But then you see other guys where it's like, we've been out here number number one, we've been out here for six hours. So if that thing was wet, like Not anymore. Mm -hmm. And number two, like, you are dry as a bone, pal, and you are sweating your ass off, but, like, you feel super cool with your, like, scarf on. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, I was guilty of that shit, too. Everybody's guilty of that shit a little bit, but uh, I think some of those tablet guys are definitely, like, oh, I have my, like, grocery list on here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember – it's interesting because when I – during during my time through the Marine Corps in just four years, seeing it, seeing the shift in everything, it's like you you literally noticed it. So in from like seventeen to nineteen, the whole, it, like the whole I guess G Watt era of like training and stuff, really just kind of like shifted more towards uh like peer-to-peer type of stuff and focus yeah things because i remember when i went to itx in 2018 they still did like ied patrol lanes and stuff and then in um i said 2018 right yeah yeah 2018 and then but um when i went back there in 2020 we didn't do any of that we just did a fucking we did quick shit and it was all like focused on russia and even in Norway, all our training was focused on, on Russia, like everything kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of stopped being about like I, I guess the Middle East and started being more towards like um, the next, the next threat, whether it be Russia or China.
1: Well, and I, I can see the justification for that because I kind of lived in, in the opposite, you know? Like mm-hmm. as long as I was in, it seemed like there was constantly talk of the need to do that, but we just couldn't manage to stop deploying to Iraq and then Afghanistan constantly. So we really just didn't have a choice, but like, anytime you read like the Marine Corps Gazette, Marine Corps times, whatever, there's always some, you know, retired general talking about like, this is what we really need to be doing and the thing is, like, in terms of, like, individual skills and, like, skills at the squad level, if you're really good at the at the conventional, you know, more peer-to-peer type shit, um, you can learn the finer points of, like, oh, now, now we're heading into a much more, you know, uh, this is an irregular adversary, this is an insurgency, whatever, we're dealing with improvised munitions et cetera, et cetera. like i think it's a fucking fiction that we're ever gonna get um rifle platoons to be these like really nuanced cross-cultural ambassadors like spreading governance in you know rural conflict torn foreign cultures like that i just don't really it's never worked before so i don't know like when it's supposed to start working um but certainly like the more like ETP type stuff of like how you, how you deal, like how you deal getting in and out of vehicles all day and, and what the nature of the IED threat is in this theater or whatever. Like you can learn that pretty quick if you're already good at the, you know, frankly more complex stuff.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I always, I always wondered about that kind of stuff. So um I think it's like interesting different the different views on it from uh I guess just like different uh perspectives.
1: I will say like just looking at like the quality of gear that
0: I wanted to mention that, yeah.
1: That the rifle squad has is fucking insane.
0: It's it's crazy because when I was okay, so my I thought it was insane when we got M twenty sevens, dude. Um, because we had uh we had the m4s um and the 203s and then uh then they brought in the m27 um and we already had the m27 in the squads but that was just for the uh, automatic riflemen. and but um yeah eventually they came in everybody got an m27 it was sick i loved it i still miss my m27 but um Then, uh, when we got out, though, like, we still had the, uh, fucking the etch helmets and the fucking the normal, uh, vests, but, um, the, when I got out, dude, they got the new generation of vests, they got the high cut. They all got peltors and shit. They got the PVS thirty ones. They got the Carl Gustav. They got silencers on all their fucking M twenty sevens. They, have, they the, have the LPVO. Have yeah, the new right. optic. They have um, actually, in that recent um, school shooting, uh, one of the officers used the, and it was in, I think, an LPVO on his uh, rifle, and he took down the shooter. But I um, know oh, shit. Yeah, it looked a lot like the uh the same type of I I could be wrong though, but it looked a lot like the same uh, optic that the Marine Corps is using. But um, it just I mean, uh,
1: a a rifle squad now looks and, and I mean just objectively is way way better. They're, they're like they like Discount MARSOC like, now. It's crazy. Like recon teams were yeah maybe, yeah probably even MARSOC. When they look like
0: they look like Discount was, MARSOC
1: i mean that that gear is fucking good it's awesome and like i think having getting rid of the smalls and having the uh gustavs at the squad level is an insanely cool idea i love that weapon um how do you guys feel about snipers going away i was I, I uh, everybody's up very upset
0: reason. nobody is yeah. uh happy with
1: that i think that's I, a very I, bad I, idea I can't think of a good reason for that other than like, oh well, they never get employed properly. It's like, well, then teach your fucking officers how to employ snipers. I think they're just getting rid of this incredible asset. But well,
0: what I I know they're not like ditching the whole sniper role per se. I know they're what they're doing is they're getting rid of it as an MOS, and they're integrating it into the platoons.
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I hope they can pull it off. You know, it it seems like the concern is like there is something to like. You need a sniper platoon to train snipers, yeah. Until gain that level, they're getting rid of all the the MOSs. Off doing sniper shit. Yeah, they
0: they uh they they're they're trying to make this like commando force type of thing where anybody can do anything, and I think that's a bad idea. I I like I like the whole cross training idea because I mean realistically. If a fucking mortar man gets shot through the head, somebody else has to fucking get on that gun. So like or it's same with the two forty.
1: That's a lot closer than the model that we were to the model that we were operating in once once we started patrolling every day for sure. Like once we settled in a patrol bases, that's essentially how we operated. Was you know, you'd have like a two forty out with a squad, probably on bipods and you know, a 60 handheld might come out as well. And like guys were real amped about that. And, and we thought that it was like a really cool way to, to operate. But on the second workup, when that new company commander showed up, um, the IOC instructor guy I was telling you about, uh-huh. uh, we were doing some training and some guy who had, uh, been on the first deployment, he's, um, he's like briefing a a patrol order and he's like, yeah, so we'll take the 240 on bipods. And, um, captain was like, well, why aren't you taking the tripod? And he's like, Oh, well, you know, we can get the gun up faster. He's like, well, maybe a, a little bit. Um, and really like, isn't that a reflection of the fact that you, your gun drill needs to be faster because with the tripod, um, like, once you're on, you're on. If you only have the bipods, like, yeah, it's easier, but, like, easier is not really our operating standard for how we do things, is it? Like, this weapon is vastly more capable with a little bit more gear and a little bit more time that you can reduce by training. He was fucking right, you know? And, like, you need machine gunners who really know the finer points of employing that gun rather than somebody who, in it's addition just hopping to the million right. other things they know, like they can shoot a machine gun.
0: Yeah, that's not, yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's, I think it's bad because it's, it's worrying me the way China is, is moving, uh, with their military because they, uh, I think this doesn't get talked about enough. They recently introduced an NCO Corps into their
1: military. Really? Yeah. They I wonder how that'll to, work uh... operationally, though. Like, because... know, there's so much kind of culture that goes into that. Same thing with Russians, right? Like, they essentially have no meaningful NCO Corps or even really junior officers. Like, orders are coming down from way above you, and if you're not getting them, like, you don't and can't do shit. Um, so I wonder like what an NCO core filtered through like Chinese culture, especially military culture, like what that'll look like. Cause it won't look like ours.
0: No, it won't, but I think, uh, I think it'll, uh, it, it'll be interesting, but it's also, I think the Chinese are a lot smarter than people make them out to be because they, uh, definitely are very, very capable.
1: Oh, they know what they're doing for sure. Yeah. Uh. And they got a ton of money, unlike Russia, who's you know, who was pretty broke before, and now they're a year into a three-day operation. Yeah, um, I just uh, remembered I have a 5 a.m. flight uh, to San Antonio, where we're, we're um, expanding that brain injury program. Um, so I actually don't have quite as much time as I thought, and I did want to talk about um, the brain injury diagnosis stuff that you and i were uh discussing earlier
0: yeah time. we can we can definitely do that another time man it's no problem
1: yeah um you know this i'll, I'll give i'll give you kind of the short version here you know I, I don't know how long it'll be until we can get on together but um you know whether it's guys who certainly guys who were going to combat in the g days and i think Equally is true for anybody in in the infantry now. Like brain health is a fucking issue. It is a problem for us. And I wanted to get on this podcast to um, try to get the word out, especially to guys who who deployed with us in 2010 and 2011. Um, guys got blown up a lot, and and were able to walk away from it because they used good tactics and they had good gear. Or they were in a an MRAP or whatever. But that doesn't mean they didn't get their bell rung. And I know guys, uh, and, I'm, and I'm talking to some of them right now, I hope, who, um, you know, this happened to them a dozen times or more, and it's affecting them now. And it never got diagnosed. They never got medevaced. They went back out the next day to go get blown up again. Um, and a lot of those guys are starting to be affected now in some pretty significant ways. Uh, and it is going to get worse uh, without treatment, it needs to get diagnosed and it needs to get treated. Um, and there is a program uh, here in New Orleans that we work with. It's not it's not my organization's program, but we work closely with them. Uh, it's called the Tulane Center for Brain Health, and uh, they operate a three week intensive brain health program that will diagnose a guy's TBI, um, the one that that should have been diagnosed years ago, and put him through an intensive battery of um, assessment and treatment to figure out the right treatment plan for them. And guys need that and regardless of what rating they may or may not already have from the VA. Um, they need to have their TBI diagnosed. It, that diagnosis needs to get to the VA because they're going to need treatment in some cases for the rest of their lives and they need to get it now. Um, right. right. The problems are going to keep getting worse. So um just trying to get that word out. And um, I know a lot of guys, uh, think highly of this count. I, I really appreciate it for keeping me up to speed on uh, how life is in the 3-6 Mafia so um, hopefully some guys from those days are listening and um, you know guys can reach me um, a lot of guys from those days hopefully still have my contact info um, you know you have my Instagram Jaxmsmith504 yeah, yeah. I'm on Facebook too regular name so um, you know just hoping to help some guys uh, get get the treatment that they definitely need, um, whether some of them realize it yet or not. So, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to to put it out there.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate you giving me your time just to talk about everything, just to hear the uh, the history of a uh, three six and just such a crazy, crazy battle. Um, it's got a lot of history to the uh, the unit. Um, They were
1: good times, man. We had, we had a really good uh, collection of kind of right guys and in the right places at the right times, you know, especially a lot of these young guys going to combat for the first time, Um, you know, fire team leader on their first deployment squad leader on their first deployment guys who did uh, incredible things. Corman on his first deployment, 18 years old, you know, might weigh 120 pounds dragging a guy through machine gun fire. Uh, and then saving his life uh, in a ditch in the dark, um, you know, pretty, pretty cool. That was Matt Dishman, one of our corpsmen who got a bronze star for that particular incident and is a hero of mine. So if I was going to give anybody a by name shout out tonight, I would be remiss if it were not him. Yeah, that's insane. Uh,
0: I definitely got to uh, reach out to him, see if he'd uh, want to come and tell a story. Yeah, or
1: anything. He's, he's one of those uh, group of guys I was, I was telling you about who... Um, I think uh would be happy to come on and um tell some stories could tell better stories than me because you know I was doing officer bullshit a lot of the time, and uh they're out there doing real work
0: uh, it's it's cool though hearing everybody's perspective just hearing uh hearing the officers hearing enlisted it's just it, it's cool getting different perspectives from uh from a a a time when a bunch of things were happening all at once, just like all the uh emotions and stories that went into it. It's cool stuff Not to hear. Thing.
1: Like, I'm I'm always real skeptical hearing from any officer who seems like real fucking sure um how any particular thing happened because like I'm always real hesitant to tell any kind of like firefight type war story in any level of detail because there was so much shit going on that I couldn't see um, that I wasn't there for. I wasn't on that side of the fight or I was on the other side of the radio. Um, mm-hmm. and so you know uh, that, that was part of why I was excited to get you connected with some of those dudes you know fire yeah, cool squad leaders and and docs who you know I think have a lot more meaningful detail and perspective um, you know I was just lucky enough to to be around those guys when they were doing some pretty incredible shit
0: yeah it's, it sounds uh it's, it sounds crazy it, it's so surreal for me that all that happens and then people will come home and then get out and it's just back to normal life and it, it, it's insane it's like just that transition and that, that was another thing i wanted to we'll definitely have to uh, meet again because i wanted to uh, ask you about how uh, transitioning out of the military was for you and then how you ended up uh, at bastion and just uh, what what your life's been like since uh, since you got out, and just I, I don't know if uh, if if there's been things that have uh, helped you kind of deal with stress or with uh, the past or anything, or versus other things. I don't know, just hearing all about yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I mean that, that is a that is a can of worms for sure. Um, you know, it, it was definitely a rocky path for uh, all of us coming back from those deployments and in, frankly, in the, you know, 10, 13 years since then. um, And we could, we could talk the rest of the night about why and what we went through and what we've done about it and what we should do. But um, I will say this, because this isn't unique to combat or margin or anything else. I don't care what you did in the Marine Corps or how long you stayed in or what the conditions of your discharge were, what your DD-214 says. One thing that we all have in common uh, upon transitioning out, um, you went to boot camp, right? 13 weeks. The, like the defining Marine Corps institution that, you know, 200 some odd years have been put into making that the perfect process for stripping away your civilian identity and replacing it with the identity of Marine, with everything that comes with that, your sense of, Pride and purpose and belonging and duty and all of that. Um, there's no fucking reverse boot camp. You know, you go to steps and taps or whatever they call it now, TRS, or, you know, you're getting out class and they teach you how to write a resume. Um, and that's it. And so you're going to have to contend sooner or later, regardless of what you're doing on the other side, with this kind of like reversal of like, not, not even really a reversal because you can't go back to who you were before you became a Marine, but you got to become a new person now. And that can be tough. I, I haven't really talked to somebody yet for whom that's not tough. And so rather than starting a you know whole new multi-hour rabbit hole here, I'll just <laughs> leave you with, I don't know a guy yet for whom it hasn't been hard. So when Marines get out and they find it hard, um, don't be too fucking hard on yourself, yeah, you know, like, for sure. um, this is tough and expect it to be tough and expect to need some help and some guidance, advice, you know, getting networked with people in a, in a new area that you've moved to, um, you know, getting help finding, you know, job connections or even finding the right job. What do you want to do? Um, it's tough. So, I think guys are set up for success if they expect that rather than the alternative, which I've seen a lot of, which is like, Oh, I'm going to kick ass as a civilian because I was a fire team leader. I was a section leader. You know, I ran an entire blank. I went to combat. Like all of those things are incredible and you, and you will be proud of them for the rest of your life and you should be. Some of them don't have a fucking thing to do with whether or not you are going to, find and build a successful happy life for yourself as a civilian Mm -hmm. and if you expect that one will naturally flow from the other you're going to run into some problems for sure
0: yeah yeah it's it's like two different because it's almost like uh when when i got out i noticed this the most was uh the the way i could talk to my friends in the marine corps It was completely different from how I could talk to everybody else because it just it it's just two very different things. If try and mix it together, you're you're not gonna like people are not gonna want to talk to you like because it's just it's not.
1: (laughs) That's the thing, man. Like I I I expect times might have changed a little bit, but like you know, in two thousand nine, like people got their asses kicked at work all the time. Like that's not normal. Right. You know, and like people would tell each other constantly like back and forth across the company office, like, you know, I'll skull fuck you or whatever. Like that is not right. normal yeah. way <laughs> to talk. Like whether you're at work or not. Um and it definitely takes a little bit. Like I went from the Marine Corps to fucking law school. You know, like it was a jarring transition. Um I don't know how it's been for you. I mean, I'm saying all this shit about getting out and you know, you've got way more immediate experience with it than I do. I've just been at it a little bit longer.
0: I mean recently, I guess. Yeah. But (laughs) I don't know. I'm still figuring out a lot of shit. (laughs) It's been, uh, I mean, that
1: doesn't end in my limited experience. Unfortunately, like I I haven't encountered a point yet where I'm like, yes, I've got it.
0: Yeah.
1: It's pretty close.
0: Uh, Yeah that definitely that definitely is some worthwhile work but yeah definitely you're gonna have to come back I, i've got a i got some free time we, we can we'll figure out something we can come back yeah, talk sure, we man. can come back circle back on all this talk about it finish it all
1: out but um for sure man, yeah a lot of a lot of getting out stuff to talk about and um you know if i can provide any any benefit to anybody um from some of the shit that we definitely did the wrong way uh, or every different version of the wrong way imaginable. Um, I'd like to.
0: Yeah, dude, definitely. Yeah. It'll be cool. It's been great talking with you, man. And I really, again, I appreciate you giving me the time. Um, It's definitely, uh, it's been really interesting here and everything you've had to uh, talk, had to say.
1: Look, man, I really appreciate it. Um, You know, I recognize that about, Ninety-nine times out of hundred, nobody wants to see a fucking lieutenant. Uh, so I appreciate you letting me uh, come into this sacred space. And, uh, and <laughs> it's got it's to gotta be a balance. Now, I, I've had, I've,
0: I've got, I've got, uh, I, I got some stories and stuff I can tell you. But <laughs> I, I got to finish the recording first. I can't, can't give out any opsec here. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't, I don't hate all the officers. I, I know some pretty good ones, but. But all right. We'll catch everybody next time. Uh
2: have a good rest of your night, guys. We'll Thanks, see you. Yep.